The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from John 4, 1 through 30. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the fields that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and what it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give to him will be in a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father is worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship that which you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why were you talking with her? So the woman left her water and just went away into town to the people. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town that they were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, family, how we doing? Good. Good to see you. If we haven't met before, uh, my name's Garrison. I'm an elder candidate here. Uh, excited for tonight. We're in the second week of our four-week mini-series. So, so coming out of Easter, we wanted to look at two reasons that people tend to reject the gospel, whether it be wholesale, outright, I don't want anything to do with Christianity type rejection, or even for us uh, who would claim to be followers of Jesus, the ways that we would struggle to live in light of the gospel and even reject the gospel in our day-to-day lives. So last week we looked at uh, Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, the leader of the Jews, and and ultimately we saw that the first reason people tend uh, to reject the gospel is the belief that we're too good. The belief that we're too good for the gospel, that instead of leaning on the grace of God uh, for salvation, we would trust in our own works and try to perform our way to God. But we said it doesn't work. 
There's not enough we could ever do uh, to make ourselves right with God to cover our own sin. Tonight we're shifting uh, to the other side of the spectrum. Not that we're too good for the gospel, but the belief that we're too bad for the gospel. So just like last week, we'll see Jesus interacting with someone in this category. So the goal for tonight is to see the gospel for the too bad. Gospel for the too bad. If you got a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 4. This is a story that comes right after uh, where we were last week. Let me pray for us. We'll hop right in. Father God, um, we thank you um, that we get to be together, that we get to worship. We thank you for the grace uh, of the cross, Jesus, that, um, yeah, you, you left the glories of heaven. You descended to live the life we never could, to die the death that we deserve. Pray, God, that that would uh, get into our hearts tonight as we look at a, a second barrier to why we would believe and trust in that good news. Yeah, God, we need you. Pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. You can read with me or in your own Bible. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that being John the Baptist, although him, Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. So Jesus catches wind that the Pharisees are starting to, to notice him, and it's not really like a good type of noticing. And he knows that because of his rising popularity, that a confrontation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, is inevitable. But he also knows that the time isn't right for that to happen. So he leaves Judea to go to Galilee, and he goes through Samaria, which is sort of like a, a shortcut. But that's kind of a big deal because uh, there's a little bit of tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. They, they actually hate each other. And this isn't like a we think our neighbors are annoying type of hatred. It's actually been raging for almost a thousand years. In fact, it's so bad that what Jesus is doing here is pretty abnormal. Most, most Jews would say going into Samaria is defiling. They would actually uh, go around it. And it's not practical at all. It would add upwards of a week to the journey. So the backstory is essentially Israel split into two countries in 900 BC, two kingdoms. So the northern kingdom, which is where Samaria was, uh, they were incredibly unfaithful to God. If you follow uh, the biblical story, it's, it's so bad that God actually gives them over to the Assyrian Empire to be conquered. And when, when that happens, when you conquered a people, uh, you didn't want them to repopulate so that they could uh, potentially have an uprising. So you did two things. One, you'd exile the majority of the people you conquered back to your own nation as slaves or concubines. And then secondly, you would send a bunch of your own people to the country you conquered to essentially integrate and mix with the remnant left there to, to integrate the cultures. What this, what this did is it effectively like erased the culture of the people you conquered. But when the Assyrians came, the Samaritans didn't even really resist. They openly welcomed and embraced Assyrian culture and religion and their idols. So Jews from the southern kingdom, they felt like they were the only real Israel left. They, they hated the Samaritans as culturally compromised, idol-worshipping, racial half-breeds. It, it raged hot, the hatred. And Jesus says, we're going to go through Samaria. That's what we're going to do. So let's see what happens. Pick it up in verse 6. It says, Jacob's well was there. 
So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus is resting from his journey, and here comes this woman. And Jesus asks her for water, and she seems really surprised by this. She says, you, a Jew, are asking me, a a woman of Samaria? She kind of responds like, wait, do you realize who you're talking to? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. Why are we talking? You're supposed to hate me. One, she's surprised because of the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, but she's also surprised because she's a woman. So in this cultural context, there's a huge gap between uh, men and women and their rights, their status, their privilege. As we just read, the disciples, actually, it says they marvel when they show back up that he's talking to a woman. Well, that all to say, what, what's going on here is really out of the ordinary. It's out of the ordinary because she's a Samaritan. It's out of the ordinary because she's a woman. And it's also out of the ordinary because of who she is. So you you may not realize it, but we actually learn a good bit about her from very few seemingly insignificant details. The main one being the time of day in the text. So it says this is happening at the the sixth hour, which may seem like a nothing, but what that means is happening the sixth hour of daylight or noon. You don't go get water at noon in the Middle East. It's the hottest time of the day. It's not like she's going to like get a cup of water. She's getting a whole jar, these huge jars full of water for bathing, for drinking water. The climate, uh, think here in the summer, but hotter and with a lot of sand. It's the desert. You don't do manual labor at noon in the desert. You go in the morning or in the evening. So the daily uh, retrieval of water, uh, it was both a chore, but it was more than that. It was also like a social outing. So it wouldn't just be one or two people showing up. It would be people from the whole community. This is the way that people would connect with one another. So for her, it seems like going at the right time seems like a non-option for some reason, which should make us think one thing. She's avoiding people, right? Why is she doing this? It's not practical. It's really out of the ordinary. She's isolating herself. She doesn't want to be seen, and we'll see why, but let's first see what Jesus says to her. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We'll pause there. Uh, This is almost oddly similar to the interaction last week, right? Where uh, Jesus is saying, hey, here's water. Last week it was new birth. And just like Nicodemus, it just goes right over her head. Just like last week, Jesus seems to be using something surface level, some type of imagery, to get to a place that's deeper. Verse 16. See what he's actually getting at here. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, 
and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Kind of a quick turn there. Just talking about living water, and now we're talking about something else. We see why she's hiding, right? She's living in sin. She's been married five times. Now she's living with another man, which culturally, that, that's a no-no. <laughs> that wouldn't fly here. She would have been ostracized. We see why she's not showing up at the right time, because she can't. Now, there's a, a couple of different ways that theologians kind of read what's going on here. The one uh, that I, I think is a little bit more common is many just focus on her sexual sin and Jesus kind of showing it to her. They see it in terms of her sinful uh, decision-making and kind of the consequences of it. Um, others see it differently. They see this and kind of read the verses as uh, it's, it's diagnostic of some uh, sexism, abuse, victimization that this woman has been taken advantage of her whole life. That she's part of a broken system. She's been treated like property. What she's saying is this is a sinful, misogynistic, broken system where she's now having to just live with a man, giving him sex to just pay the rent. Regardless of the option, and I think it's both kind of rolled into one, the end result is the same. This woman is living in sexual brokenness and hiding. It seems that it's a little bit odd that Jesus goes from talking about living water to her sin. Like, she shows up and he says, hey, can I have a drink? And how about the adultery, by the way? How about the five husbands? Is he just bad at small talk? What's he doing? Let's see. Verse 19. Let's see where Jesus is actually going with this. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's very perceptive. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. A lot of things just happened in these 26 verses. But if we just had to sum it, summarize it, Jesus approaches this woman, or this woman approaches him, and he spells out the path towards eternal life, just like he did for Nicodemus last week, except he doesn't use the imagery of new birth. He uses living water, which means life, life to the full satisfaction. Says this woman, you will never thirst again. It's a, a beautiful invitation. But we're still left with, why did he mention the five husbands? What does her five husbands have anything to do with eternal life? This is it. Can you imagine what this woman would have felt living her life? She's heard that the Messiah is coming, that he's going to gather a people, that he will tell us all things, he's going to lead us. She's got to be thinking, am I worthy of that? Am I worthy of being near the Messiah? It seems like she doesn't even think she's worthy enough to, to be near the rest of her community to draw water, let alone be near the Messiah. This woman's living in sexual sin because of a broken system. She's a Samaritan woman and is interacting with a Jewish man, which, by the way, is only happening because she's avoiding the rest of her community. She feels lesser than, and that's probably what she's been told and felt for most of her life. She's 
sought life and romance and security and being married, and it hasn't worked. And she's paying for it. So by bringing up the husbands, Jesus is exposing her problem. Not just her sin, not that she's a Samaritan or a woman, but a real problem. Problems of belief that she's too bad. She's ashamed. Beliefs that she's too bad. She's dealing with shame, which is different from a feeling of guilt. Guilt is more like a reality. It's, it, it says it's the message that I did something wrong. Shame's different. Believing you're too bad is different. It, it's less that I did something wrong and more that I am something wrong, which is incredibly relatable. We've all got something that fits in there. Something we've thought or done or experienced or been done to us that we think if others knew about this, if they saw this, we would do exactly what this woman's doing. We would hide. We've all got shame. And this can be a powerful internal conflict where you think if they really knew me, they couldn't ever accept me. There must be something wrong with me. And it can go even deeper. What's under the belief that we're too bad is the message, how could God love someone like me? How could God love someone like me? Which we'll get into and see what Jesus does with, but before we go on too much, I just want to bring some light to this and see how it shows up in us. Let's talk about three reasons that we experience this, three reasons, three reasons we feel and believe we're too bad. First is because of who we are. We believe we're too bad. We experience shame because of who we are. It can be uh, just like this woman. It could have more to do with your, your race or your gender, like this woman, especially if you're uh, an ethnic minority or, or female. Historically speaking, there, there tends to be uh, a tendency that you feel less than because of unequal societal treatment. This is a fact. Racial prejudice, segregation, sexism, it has an incredible power to create a sense of shame. It could be your race or gender. It could be something different. It could be your family history. If you come from a background, a family that has a criminal background, or from a family with divorce, adultery, brokenness of all sorts, could create in you a sense of shame. This is huge for me. Uh, if you kind of look at my family tree and just go back uh, three generations of, as far as you can count and look at every single marriage laid out across the board, all except for one ended in divorce. All but one had some sort of adultery and brokenness, and I can get it in my head that I'm going to be the same way. I have no hope. I see my tendencies, and I see what happened to them, and I'm like, that's going to be me too. I see the stats of kids of divorced parents, how likely it is that they'll be divorced as well. And I have to fight shame there. I think I'm going to be stuck. It be very powerful. Uh, this could be anything that causes you to feel lesser than or like an outsider. So it could be how you look, you feel like you don't fit the bill for what a man or a woman is supposed to look like. It could be your circumstances. You internalize what's happened to you. You were fired, didn't make it through school. It could be a medical diagnosis, an issue with pregnancy. It's very easy to take all of that and say, I'm bad because of what has happened. It could be how you feel, your mental health. Those who deal with social anxiety, this is kind of like an internalized fear of rejection and shame, where we think, if I walk into a room, it's all worse because I'm here. Everyone's a little bit sadder because I'm here. We feel shame. We feel like we're too bad because of who we are. It can also be because of what we've done. What we've done. 
because of mistakes or sins in our past or present, we feel stained or marked. Just think there's something wrong with me. There's no way that God could forgive this. I've done it too many times. Sexual sin's a huge one in this category. It could be porn, hookups, maybe your life before Jesus, maybe an addiction that's present right now. You feel like you've been following Jesus for a while. You just feel like you're going backwards. This time must be too much for His grace. He's not going to cover it this time. Maybe it's less sinful actions. It could just be a mistake, right? Did something at work in your past. You just think, I'm, how could I do that? How could I mess up that bad? We just hold on to this. We feel like we're a bad spouse, a parent, friend, because we sinned, because we messed up. We can't let it go. Last one is because of what's been done to us. I believe we're too bad because of what's been done to us. Uh, any form of rejection can bring this about. could be uh, uh, rejection by your parents, peers. Uh, maybe you were bullied at some point, rejected by a romantic interest. And what you carry is nobody could ever love me, no one would ever want to be with me. The biggest one in this category is just abuse in general. This carries a really deep message that I don't deserve to be loved. I deserve for bad things to happen to me, to be hated, abused, mistreated. It can be any of these, all of them, in a million different ways. And what we do, just like this woman, is we avoid it, try to uh, make it like it's all okay, I'm fine. We distract ourselves, we deny it, we keep it in the dark, we numb ourselves, and we run to sin and addiction. I would say the reality is all of us have something that makes us feel too bad, that makes us believe, how could God ever love someone like me? That's the bad news. But Jesus doesn't leave this woman there, and he doesn't leave us there either. Let's see what he does. It's actually back in verse 4. It's a really small verse that I think we could just easily miss, but I think it's really significant. Verse 4, it says, And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And he had to pass through Samaria. Why? He's God. Why does he have to do anything? Especially with his travel plans. He didn't have to. He wasn't bound to it. He says he had to. It wasn't a logistical issue. He's not scared of the Pharisees. Jesus always makes it clear that he's, uh, he's going to die when he, when he says it's his time. Why do you have to pass through? To offer her living water. To meet her there. Jesus had a divine appointment at a well in Samaria with a woman drowning in shame who had no living water to drink. Just like this woman daily comes and goes to get water, drinks it, wakes up another, uh, the next day uh, thirsty again. She's done the same thing with her life. Trying to fill a void, trying to escape from her shame, over and over again getting worse each time, thinking the romance will fix it, it'll satisfy, that the security of a man will work, and it doesn't. And it leaves her thirsty. Until eventually... She gives up on marriage altogether. She just gets together with this guy. What she does every day with the water pot for a physical thirst is what she's doing with sexual sin, romance, for soul-level thirst. She's trying to solve it on her own. But God sent His Son to be living water for such people. People like us, people like her, trying to deal with our shame, our belief that we're too bad on our own. Uh, the reality that Jesus had to go through Samaria to offer her living water 
It changes her life. And it will change your life. Let me show it to you. Look, look at how this story ends. Verse 28. We'll skip around a little bit. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. I want to just read that again. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. This woman goes from dodging the whole town because of her story to telling the whole story to the town. What happened? She's been avoiding everyone. What changed her life is Jesus offering her living water in the midst of her shame, in the midst of her believing that she's too bad. He says, come find satisfaction, peace, and eternal life in me. And we, we can't miss this. Think back to the, the weird thing Jesus bringing up her husband's. He, he did it, one, to expose the sin, but he also did it. He also brought up the husband's because he wanted her to know that he's offering living water to the real her. Not some stranger that he just met. Not some fake version that he just met to this ashamed woman living in sin, ostracized from her community. He offers it to her. He's offering the living water and satisfaction to her. And the crazy thing is she meets the Christ and her story of brokenness and shame is transformed. She doesn't have to hide anymore. He says, he told me all I ever did. How different a way of life. Uh, here's, here's the thing about shame. Uh, the thing about believing we're, we're too bad. Um, it's true. It's true. Shame declares of you that you're not good enough for God. And that is true. That sounds really mean, but it's true in and of yourself. There's, there's a whole wave of people out there that'll tell you the solution for this is just to love yourself more. That that's the way you're not going to believe that you're too bad anymore. And that's not going to work. Because it's just the, another way to pretend. It's just another trip to the well that you'll have to do over and over again. It's empty. It doesn't get you to where this woman is. Only when you see Jesus offering her, offering you living water, you, not the fake version, not the church version, you, will you be able to look at all of your badness and shame and have hope and have freedom because you can't clean yourself up. You won't be able to do it. We'll all fall short. And when we do, hiding won't work either. Only when you see Jesus offering you living water can you actually have hope. You need to see Jesus seeking her out and seeking you out. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus came to live a perfect, sinless life, a shameless life, and to die a shameful death for us. A criminal's death, not just physically and culturally shameful, but spiritually. He took our badness onto himself on the cross so that sinful Shameful people like us can come to him as we are, not faking it, and accept the living water he offers us. Let me, let me just uh, wrap up both weeks with this. Um, what's underneath both the belief that we're too bad and we're too good for the gospel is a misunderstanding of grace. That's what it is. It's a misunderstanding of grace. Both ultimately say my right standing with God is based on my performance. I have to live up to his standard. Both are works-based. 
and following Jesus is about grace and only grace. Uh, Grace is both not getting what we deserve and getting what we don't deserve in Christ. Grace is about not getting what we deserve, wrath, damnation, and getting what we don't deserve, salvation, adoption, justification in Christ. And when you get that, you will have peace and freedom that looks exactly like what this woman has. I I wonder what that would look like for me, for you. I I wonder how aware we are of that reality on on a day in, day out basis. How much peace do you have because of this? How much peace do you have in your life because of the gospel that you don't have to perform or hide? I want that. I want that for you. And I kind of just want to wrap up uh, with kind of a hypothetical, give you a picture of what this can look like in your life on a day-to-day basis. Let's just, hypothetically, I want to take you through uh, kind of a two-day sequence. And let's just do my life. Let's say uh, I wake up, I wake up in the morning, and I'm happy as ever. It's the day the Lord hath made. And I literally skip downstairs to go make breakfast. And I'm not just making the basics. It's not cereal. It's not bacon and eggs. It's pancakes. It's, I make a latte. And not just for me, for my lovely wife. I, we have a quiet time together. Um, we weep. Uh, we thank Jesus for all that he's doing in our life. It's the greatest quiet time ever quieted. Um, I leave my house with plenty of time to get to work because of margin, of course. Um, hit every green light, and I see a man. Um, he's pulled over on the side of the road. He's got a flat tire. I selflessly pull over, and I help. He's so grateful, and you know what? I am too. I'm just grateful to be able to help. I get to work. I have a great meeting with my coworkers. I give an update about how everything's going with me. I get a promotion. They say, gosh, you're doing so great. We're so proud of you. Here's a raise. I'm, thank you. I go out to lunch with my community group guys, and uh, we want to be intentional. You know, we're, we're really cl- uh, clocked in. And we see that our server isn't just a server. She has a soul. And we're really there to serve her. We get into the deepest parts of her life. We encourage her. I pick up the tab because of my raise. <laughs> I leave a $100 tip because Jesus has been generous to me. We walk out. The server runs out, looks at all of us. She says, who are you guys? We look at each other, smirk. We say, just Christians, you know. <laughs> I spend all afternoon working on citizen stuff. I'm crushing it. Tim walks into my office. He's blown away. He kind of sits down. He's like, this is awesome, man. Do you want my job? <laughs> I say, no, man, it's fine. I go back to my desk. I have a little devotional. I sit down. I see handwritten notes from all the community group leaders just thanking me. I pray for them. Honestly, thank, thank you guys. I leave work early, still all green lights. I I get home, I cook, I clean, because she's worth it. We go to community group. I confess deeply, a little tear. I gospel up all of my guys. Got verses, I'm killing it. I go home, we're going to bed, we're praying together as a family, we're cuddling. Just drift off into sleep, thanking Jesus. God, you're so good, is my last thought. Wake up the next day. Overslept, late, the water heater's broken. Get in the shower, it's cold. No time with God. I slept terribly. Cole, my wife, burns the bacon. 
I snap at her. I don't apologize. I get in the car, major road rage. I see the same guy with the flat tire, and I splash him with a puddle. I get a ticket. I get to work late. I miss the meeting. They take away my raise. I know. I go to lunch alone. I'm angry the whole time. I don't even look at the server. Come back. I have a terrible day at work. I'm annoyed with everyone. I'm apathetic. I don't care about doing citizen stuff. I go home. We continue that argument. How dare you burn the bacon? Community group is terrible. I shut down the whole time. I don't want to talk about my sin. Every time I try to tell the gospel to somebody, they're just like, have you even read the Bible? What are you talking about? You're so unhelpful. I get home. I got to do dishes. I'm still fuming. Cole goes to bed. I stay up. Watch TV. Still frustrated. I end up looking at porn. Terrible night. I go to bed all upset. My last thought as I go to bed is, God, where were you today? What are you doing? Do you even care about me? And the, the peace of the gospel is that God's love for me is the same both days. God's love for me is the same both days. And the same is true for you. It doesn't matter the day. It doesn't matter if you have the best day and you're, you know, your pride's going crazy. You're like, I really got this. Or the worst day where you're completely falling apart. God's love for you is the same in Christ. God's love for us is based on Jesus' performance, not ours. And that is the only thing that brings peace that can last. That his love for you is earned in Christ. It cannot be lost because of your performance. And regardless of where you're at, if you lean towards uh, the badness that we talked about this week or the goodness from last week, however it shows up in your life, you've got to know that you're offered living water regardless of where you are in Christ. It's not based on what you do, but only on Him. And resting uh, in His grace, whether it be the first time or the millionth time, it, it'll change your life. And it's the thing that you need to enter the kingdom of God and to stay there. And, and that's what we celebrate every week when we take communion. So you should have a cup on your, uh, on your pew. Um, on, the, on the night Jesus was betrayed, um, he took bread and wine. Um, and he said, this is my body and blood broken, spilt for you. You can take the bread. Now remember Christ's body that was broken for you. Take and eat. Likewise, he said, uh, this wine, in our case juice, is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. You can take it now. I'm going to pray for us. And then we will worship together. Father God, we thank you for the hope and the peace and the freedom of the gospel. There's, uh, there's nothing we could do to earn your love. There's nothing we could do to lose it. Jesus, thank you that you give us your perfect record and resume. And that uh, when you look at us on our best day and our worst day, it's the same. You're pleased with us. Pray, God, that that would uh, transform my own heart and all of our hearts, God. 
God, that we would be the people uh, in, in the story, like the woman, like the community, that both we would uh, feel the freedom <laughs> to share uh, the, the deep brokenness in our souls because uh, of the freedom of the gospel, and that because of it, it would, we would see exactly what happens here. The, the people around us would see the compellingness, the beauty of the gospel on display in our lives, and that they would be drawn to it as well. We thank you for your spirit that moves and changes us. We need you, God. We pray it all in your name. Amen.